Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Thank you for tuning in this morning. And for those of us who have lived in Las Vegas for a number of years, then I'm sure that you're familiar with the name Glenn Meek. For more than three decades, Glenn was a multi-Emmy award-winning investigative TV journalist. And he spent more than seven years as a staff investigator for the Federal Public Defender of Nevada. Now, Glenn has authored a new book that looks deeper into the late 90s mob involvement without call escort services. The book is titled Wrong Numbers, Call Girls, Hackers, and the Mob in Vegas. Glenn Meek, welcome to the program. We go back quite a few years. I mean, uh, we always enjoyed having you on our morning show back in the day, back in the 90s. Yeah, we go back to probably uh, too many years than I'd care to admit. (laughs) You filled in for our news guy, Dennis Mitchell, I guess, what, a couple of times? And, and, you know, I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> uh, I remember it seems like you guys always tried to get me to say something inappropriate. And I think I walked the line. I think I walked that tightrope pretty adroitly and I never managed to do that. But it was a lot of fun uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, work my way around that. That was uh, that was a lot of fun in those days. Yeah, there was probably one thing you had in common with a lot of the TV news people who came on our show or filled in or whatever, and that is, I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said that every time I went on, and I went on three or four times. <laughs> That's hysterical. You know, I, I don't know if it was the challenge or actually, you know, just that, that it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, looking back on it today, I think a lot of us, especially in the news business in those days, took ourselves a lot more seriously than we serve. And we were probably a prime target for that sort of thing. I would certainly want to talk about your brand new book. But, but first, to go back a few years, when and where did you get your start in TV news? Oh, gosh. I really got my start in TV news back in uh, the Midwest. I think you're from there. You're from, the- from Wisconsin, yeah. You're from Wisconsin. I uh, went to college at Purdue in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, during uh, one summer uh, between uh, semesters, I uh, I was looking for a summer job, and I uh, I saw an ad in the paper. Back in those days, there was no internet, so you know you'd see uh, ads in the paper for a summer job, and it was they were looking for a booth announcer, which is that guy that would say uh, I would say uh, it was uh, Channel 18. WLFI and I would uh, I would come on uh, you know on the on the half hour and do the station IDs and all that stuff you know TV 18 serving Mid North Indiana you know we had this mythical <laughs> region that we were part of Mid North Indiana and so I did that and, and I liked it so much I you know I stayed on after college and I started working every job I could there I you know I would come in I was actually you know in production. Yeah, in the booth announcer, and so I would do the the. the uh, and part of my job was not only, and that's really how I got the job. There were better announcers in town than I was, uh, but I. But the, part of the uh, the audition was you also had to write copy. You wrote the copy, and then you recorded your own copy, and then they listened to the commercial that you did. And so they said, "Oh, this scrapes." So we got a writer as well. So I guess the, the the commercials that I did were better than the other guys, even though they had you know better voices and you know more experience, let's say in radio. But um, that's how I got started. And then on the weekends, I would come in in those days, you know, just, just have a couple of reporters. and some, I think this is like market 192 or something like that. I would come in on the weekends just, just to learn the business. And uh, there'd be like two reporters for the whole weekend. 
and they would take turns like shooting video for each other's stories. So I said, hey, look, how about this? You know, you guys can concentrate on, you know, getting the story. I'll be your photographer and I'll do it for free. So, you know, that's how I started. And then I had a friend who worked at that station, went down south to Louisiana, became an anchorman down there. And he called me up one day and said, hey, you know, uh, you want to move over to news full time, get out of production? I said, yeah, I, I would like to do that. So I, I came down, I started as a, uh, a part-time uh, camera guy and a uh, part-time uh, reporter and eventually worked my way up to a full-time reporting. And then uh, after about five years down there, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where a friend had moved on and the business had moved to Las Vegas. And so in the mid-80s, I got a call from her, and she said, hey, we're looking for a reporter, and I've uh, talked to you up a bit with the news director. And uh, just after the beginning of the year in 1988, uh, I came to Las Vegas. So, yeah, been more than about 31 years now. Uh, what station hired you here in Las Vegas? Oh, I started, uh, actually, I started with, and worked for on three separate dates, uh, KTNV, which is Channel 13, the ABC. You know, it's amazing, too. When you start in small markets like that, you really, if you want to, you can learn the ropes and you can learn just about every job that there is behind and in front of the scenes, can't you? Oh, absolutely. I, I ran studio camera. I ran audio sometimes for the newscasts. I edited video. I shot video for the newscasts. I directed some of my own commercials. You know, I would, I mean, I would literally did everything. I would write the commercial and I would go out and shoot it and then I would edit it. And then I would record the voiceover narration for the commercial. And so I, I mean, I literally did it from, from scratch. And so, yeah, you learn a lot about the business. You learn about, you know, production techniques, what you can, what you can't do, uh, how to do things on a budget. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was not only a lot of fun, it was invaluable experience. And that was the other thing. If you, if you messed up, yeah, small town, you know, TV, people didn't really, you know, you've been out of shape over that. So it was a good place to, you know, to learn and make your mistakes so that when you got to a bigger market, you were a lot more polished. So I'm wondering if when, because this is what I know and, and a lot of people know you for, and that is your investigative uh, news reporting. When did that kind of come on to your radar? Well, I'll tell you, I started um, doing some of that down in Louisiana when I was down there. Louisiana was very, uh, it's really funny. I used to joke that from a climate perspective, Louisiana is the opposite of, uh, you know, uh, the desert southwest. From a political perspective, it's almost identical. I mean, you had a lot of, uh, back when I was down there, you had a lot of, you know, shady politicians, a lot of corruption. And when you're coming, you, anything, even like City Hall, pretty soon, you know, you're starting to hear from uh, people that are approaching you as sources and saying, hey, you know, this, uh, this contract for the garbage was, you know, there were kickbacks or payments or, you know, hey, these people you know, flew the city council members out, you know, and wind them and dined them. And then you start looking for those documents and asking for those things. And suddenly you're developing, even in small towns, really good, you know, stories about, you know, politics and corruption. And so I started to get a sense of that down there. And then there was a lot of, uh, especially in those days, this is in the 80s. This is sort of in the height of the um, Miami Vice era. Right. Especially in Louisiana, which actually a lot of people don't even think about it, but Louisiana had the third longest coastline on the Gulf Coast. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the cocaine and marijuana, a lot of that stuff that was coming up, uh, wasn't necessarily going through Florida and Texas because, you know, there was such a uh, large uh, law enforcement presence in those two states. 
a lot of it was coming up to Louisiana and some of the same smuggling routes that Jean Lafitte the pirate used back in, you know, uh, 200, 300 years earlier. Uh, because you had all these swamps and you had all these uh, tributaries and waterways uh, that, that people could come up with. And there were a lot of fishermen and shrimpers who weren't doing so well. But, well, you know, yeah, bring a couple of loads of uh, ganja up here, pay off the boat. So there was a lot of that going. I started doing a lot of that. with. Uh, I got in pretty tight with some of the anti-smuggling law enforcement people down there with the state police and with the customs and the local um, uh, police and sheriff's office. And pretty much... And started doing a lot of those kind of stories, and that that gave me a much higher profile from sort of a true crime perspective. And then I came out here, and you know, oh my gosh, it was it was such a fertile ground for investigative yeah. reporting, and people really appreciated it here back then. You know, nowadays I don't know if you drop the name Ned Day, uh, whether you know that many people would recognize it, but yes, really well known in the day and you know George Knapp was here when I first got here you know it was investigative reporting was something that people really appreciated and if you could show a propensity for being able to get those kinds of stories on the air then you you know it it raised your profile and allowed you to do some uh, you know get more time and uh, more resources to do those kinds of stories and so for me it was a natural evolution of what I was doing you have a tendency to run into some of those mob guys in this town back in those days. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, you always see the, I used to see the reports on the news where, you know, one of those guys was being harassed by a reporter and he would say, you better watch out. <laughs> you better not keep bothering me. It's kind of scary. Were you, were you ever threatened by any of those types? Uh, I had one, one incident and it was involving a uh, particular uh, topless club in town that had, uh, you know, there were allegations they had, uh, you know, still had pretty strong ties to some of the uh, outfit guys up in uh, in Chicago. Yeah. It was actually, you know, at least according to the law enforcement investigators, one of the last bastions of, of organized crime, which were these, you know, um, topless places, uh, sex clubs, that sort of thing. And I had done a pretty scathing expose on this particular club and some of the people who were working there. And I got one of those postcards in the mail. It was like something out of a movie. In fact, you know, I didn't know whether to be worried or just laugh because <laughs> it, it was where they had literally cut out the, you know, the letters from the magazine. <laughs> right. Something like, you know, I can't remember exactly what it said. It was, it was one of those pseudo semi-threatening things like, you best be watching the app or something like that, where they don't overtly say, we're going to kill you, but it's sort of like, who cuts letters out of a magazine, takes them on it, doesn't watch your back. I mean, you know, so it was one of those things that I remember uh, specifically because someone who had, that we had profiled uh, had recently died. And, and uh, there, were some, uh, there were some people that were, were upset uh, that they felt like uh, this person who had recently died who was sort of uh, brought to the fore and some of this reported, you know, had been disrespected or what have you. But that's the only time that I ever, you know, I, I certainly, I, 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 you know, I've been in situations where I would run into these guys at the courthouse and, you know, I'm trying to be just, hey, I'm a reporter, I'm just reporting the facts here, you know, I'm not, I'm not prosecuting you guys. And I would extend my hand to say, oh, Mr. So-and-so, and they wouldn't, you know, they would just stare 
stare at me with that thousand yard stare. Yeah. A couple of guys like that that really it was chilling. Just the way they, they looked at me as as though I were just beneath contempt. I, very rarely have I had people that could actually like look like Drew like that. But a couple of these guys, those old school guys, they could still do that. They, you know, I wouldn't say it necessarily put the fear down in me, but I was like, wow, that's crazy. Glenn Meek joins me. Glenn's new book is called Wrong Numbers, Call Girls, Hackers, and the Mob in Vegas. The title itself is pretty interesting because it, it almost refers to old school versus new school, I suppose. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the reasons I decided to write the book. This is uh, an outgrowth of something that I covered back in the 90s. And, you know, the, the Internet really didn't start becoming a common thing in people's lives until about 1992, 1993. And this is going on between probably 1996 and 1998. And during the course of, of what was going on here, we were seeing a, a shift. We were also seeing at the same time uh, this explosion of what were called outcall entertainment services. You probably remember. Uh, yeah. The biggest form of advertising, maybe not the biggest, but certainly one of the biggest forms of advertising, for these services was the Yellow Pages, was the phone book. Uh, at that time, we had probably between 130 and 150 full-page ads for these services, which were also called escort services, essentially the services that, you know, nominally they're there to send an exotic dancer to your hotel room to entertain you, when in fact, yes. uh, when police would do stings, uh, they go in there, pretend to be, uh, you know, tourists to call these uh, women over through these services. You know, 99 times out of 100, uh, it would be women saying, "Yeah, we're here, uh, you know, as prostitutes. We're essentially called girls." And so that that particular type of business was really flourishing back at this time. At the same time, the internet was starting to get started. And so what happened was. Uh, some of these alcohol service owners started to notice that their call volume started dropping. In other words, you know, they would like get, you know, 100 calls a day. Suddenly they're getting 50 calls a day. Then next week they're getting 25 calls a day. And so what became sort of folk wisdom within the industry was that there was hackers, phone hackers, that, that were triggering the call forwarding systems in the phone company. So that let's say I'm a guy in a hotel room, I'm a a tourist here, you know, I'm by my lonesome. I want to have some female companionship. I either pick up one of those pamphlets that they're handing out constantly on the strip, or I look in the phone book and I find, you know, oh, uh, sexy Sally's will send a woman to my room, direct them right. Room. Right. So I call sexy Sally. So my phone call doesn't go to sexy Sally. The phone call goes to Swinging Seasons because someone has, <laughs> you know, hacked into the phone system and made every, let's say, every third call that service go to another service. So the theory was that the, these hackers had made it so that certain services, which were doing really well, were not having, you know, service interruptions or call volumes drop. They were suddenly, you know, doing much better in the mom and pop operations. They're going, what's going on? How come I can't get my phones to it? And so that prompted one particular guy, uh, rather than go, of course, to the police to solve this problem, he, uh, he ends up going to According to investigators, a, uh, a member of the uh, or an associate of the Banano crime family in New York, 
And that's where this whole plot gets launched. So who was that guy? Because all I've heard about is how some people may have been tortured to stop doing those things. Well, yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of uh, reputation. There was a lot of uh, uh, theoretical things that were happened that either didn't happen or got embellished. But I I can tell you this. There was a guy by the name of uh, Chris, and he owned a, a service here. And he ended up prevailing upon a guy named Mario in New York, who was this uh, supposed banana uh, crime family associate, and telling him about this problem with the, uh, with the phones. And at some point, they identified a guy that they thought was doing this. And he was a very interesting character as well. Um, he told people that he actually lived at Binion's Horseshoe in an unlisted numbered room. <laughs> and uh, this guy actually was a computer expert, and he had uh, various mob connections, but he also did work uh, on the side for uh, federal agencies on occasion. So he was a guy uh, who knew about telephones, who knew about computers, and so uh, these mob guys uh, suspect that he is the mastermind behind this call diversion thing. And so they send this team of alleged enforcers down to Las Vegas to find this guy and convince him to work for them or else. This is the story that the federal agents are telling. So one of these guys that they send down here, he has probably the best mob moniker I've ever heard. And, you know, we had uh, Tony DeAnce Palacho back in the day. This guy's name was uh, Vinny Aspirin's Kinjuski. Aspirin <laughs> was so named because when the mob gets a headache, Vinny takes care of it. Yes. Yeah. His uh, tools of the trade supposedly included a cordless drill, and which he would then uh, <laughs> use to either drill into the kneecaps or heads of people who would not tell him what he wanted them to tell him. Incredibly, old Vinny Aspirins, when they eventually took this whole taper down, and when they arrested everybody, he found a cordless drill in his luggage. Wow, that's incredible. And and so was the 90s the peak time for outcall services? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This whole thing really, you know, people talk about the perfect storm. This was the perfect storm because the Internet was new. The call girl racket was essentially being, you know, commercialized and industrialized. And, and, and the heart of it all was the phone system. And in those days the phone system was not hardened, you know, to prevent this type of intrusion. And there were, especially in Las Vegas, you know, every year in Las Vegas, there's a a convention of hackers. Yeah. Oh, DEF CON or whatever. Las Vegas, people don't realize there's always been a hotbed of hackers. And so this is exactly where you would tend to find that sort of thing. You'd also tend to find it in an industry like, escort industry, where even though they're nominally lawful, what's really going on behind the scenes is not. So these people don't feel like they can go to the cops to solve their problems. And, uh, you know, so you have also what you know, least believe that these services were essentially a low-level uh, type of organized crime. Yeah, I heard that there was something, may, might have been an excerpt from your book, that there were maybe 150 of these outcall services at any given time. Yeah, I think that's probably a pre pretty accurate figure back in the day. Now, it's interesting because today, I don't think there's even 40 of them that are registered with the county anymore. And I just think that's because what has happened is the Internet has changed everything. There's all these uh, 
places like you know some of the ones that used to be up. I think the FBI took back page down. But there was another a website called Red Book, and of course even Craigslist. You know, um, working girls, prostitutes, uh, male prostitutes, working through the internet, working through these different apps now are making direct connections, whereas before they were making these connections through these services. And so the services are not nearly as uh, as important for that sort of uh, sex work today as it was then. But in those days, that's where it was at. And so it was. It was this weird, perfect storm. Glenn, I'm wondering, too, if back then, did the hotels and or motels, did they know that this stuff was going on? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. You know, of course they did. And, you know, to one extent, yeah. they looked the other way is really something that... You know, people have different opinions on. There are certainly people who think they did look the other way. Some are of the opinion that they were less concerned about the prostitution going on in hotel rooms than they were about these guys on the strip handing out the booklets. Remember that? I don't know if that's as bad as it used to be. But back in the day, the county and these uh, alcohol services were fighting tooth and nail in the courts over these, what they called the handbillers, these guys who would stand out on the street and, and hand out, you know, what they called the smut publications or whatever. They were the publications that advertised all these escort services. And I'm sure you remember that. It was like you could not walk down the street. A lot of right. people thought it was less about the prostitution because there's kind of been prostitution. Even though it's illegal in Clark County, it's, it's the only state where it is legal in certain parts of the state. So, you know, a lot of people thought this is less about the prostitution than it is about the overt advertising. And there actually was a funny story in my book about uh, I ended up getting a call from a guy who was uh, the head of security at Playboy at the time, or he was one of the top security people at Playboy at the time. He went at lunch uh, because he knew I was doing a bunch of stories about these alcohol services and their fight for the county over the advertising on the strip. And it turns out that, uh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, Playboy founder there. Uh, uh, Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner had come to Las Vegas with an entourage, and I believe his wife at the time was Kimberly, Kimberly Conrad. And the entourage were walking down the strip, and these guys were handing out these uh, pamphlets, you know, uh, the, you know, blonde Asian milfs want to meet you tonight or whatever it is. And, you know, they hand one of these pamphlets to uh, Hugh, and he looks at it, and Kimberly Conrad, his wife who's standing there next to him, is depicted as one of these alcohol dancers. And it turned out <laughs> what they were doing is they were, you know, Playboy and Penthouse and some of these uh, adult publications had just really started uh, having um, online editions, right? And so some of these, these uh, services were just pirating their pictures and saying, oh, yeah, this is the girl we're going to send to your room. Just you know, call this number. And so they ended up, you know, uh, starting at least to mount a legal fight against this. And eventually they did, uh, they did get, uh, most, if not all, of the services to stop using their um, you know, copyrighted pictures to advertise these escorts. Um, and in fact, uh, even today, I think if you see some of these materials, these pamphlets, they'll even say, "Oh, a photo of an entertainer is the actual entertainer." They actually now now it's a point of pride to say it's not a uh, the person you see in the ad is not professional picture. Right. What are you doing now? We certainly miss you on TV doing news. I mean, you're you're one of the old pros that there are few and far between these days. Not many left. And I, and I understand some of those, uh, some of the few people that are left. I may be getting ready to retire. Um, I uh, do. Uh, I'm semi-retired now. I do some yeah. writing and obviously I you know, put some time in on this book. But then I do uh, part-time uh, private investigation work for a couple of uh, private investigation firms uh, here in town. And 
that uh, keeps me uh, just busy enough. Keeps me down at the courthouse, keeps me down at the jail, keeps my mind sharp. And uh, so I'm doing a, a lot of criminal defense work at this point. And I'm hoping, because it sure sounds like it would make a great uh, movie, that maybe Hollywood will come calling because this is something that's almost too unbelievable to believe. You know, it is. It is hard to believe. Uh, when you look at all the things that happen, and, and again, it's kind of like a house of mirrors or a three-ring circus. You had so many different things going on at the same time. You had these yeah. uh, escort services flourishing big time. You had the uh, hackers starting to make their presence felt. And then you still had this last vestige of the old mob that said, you know, well, we, we, don't, much, we don't know anything about hacking or computers, but we know how to uh, force a guy who does know how to use computers to work for us. So you had this sort of sense of things going on and it was it really was sort of a uh, you know a clash of two cultures the old versus the new playing out over the world's oldest profession glenn meek's new book wrong numbers call girls hackers and the mob in vegas i believe you can get it at wild blue press at the website there along with amazon.com that's correct right glenn it's so great to talk to you i hope we can do it again uh, sometime soon and good luck with the book oh thank you very much it's been a pleasure of course talking to glenn really makes me nostalgic for a time when there were actually reporters who went the extra mile for a story, but that's a topic for a different show. Thanks again to Glenn Meek and make sure that you pick up his book Wrong Numbers. And thank you for tuning in this morning. I do hope to see you all back here next Sunday at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.